Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, I'm here with John, and we are actually redoing a conversation. I had put up a podcast that I had recorded us having a conversation, and I think we thought about it some more and uh, wanted to approach it in a more thoughtful and careful way. The issue of LGBTQ and issues of gender reassignment in approaching this, how we can navigate this, how we might understand it as Christians. And John has done a lot more thinking about it, maybe because of your own uh, situation there in the Episcopalian Church, that you've had to face these issues uh, straight on. I, I would also just say, I mean, I, I think in what we're doing by talking about this again is trying to live into what Forging Plowshares is all about, which is a peaceable version of, the only version of Christianity, I guess, is peaceable. But that we're willing to say, hey, maybe we didn't say that quite right or got something wrong and don't want to do harm and are willing to talk through things again to foster peace rather than violence or, or division of any sort. Here in Missouri, this is right now an issue with uh, the issue of transgender children and that there is a kind of reactionary movement and it's not that we want to be so bland as to be totally inoffensive but we do want to approach it in a way that at least is not reactionary and uninformed oh yeah i i think it's a fraught issue at at the level of an issue but maybe not at the level of human experience and that's what i would say is uh, i'm i want to offend some people just not the people who we might have accidentally offended by our previous freewheeling conversation. You know, a nice entry into the top of the discussion is what we were just talking about, how you, in your own experience as a teacher, now have these students who themselves are having a hard time fitting into church for whatever reason. And you know how, from personal experience, how difficult it is to feel that homelessness And we don't want to inflict that unnecessarily on anyone. That's right. That's right. The the way that I tend to approach this, you know, I think we just have to think of it in terms of our own family, our own children. If we're talking about life-saving measures, if it is that, if, if there is something that we can do, and if I'm not claiming I know that it is, and maybe, John, you need to cite that there's really a division statistically in the effects of reassignment surgery and mental health. I'll think of this in terms of my own experience. As I've tried to do any sort of preliminary research on the effects of having transgender gender reassignment surgery, what you can find at the popular level is everybody can find facts to support their position. When you go deeper, it does seem that from medical journals, the overwhelming evidence is supports having gender reassignment surgery. But then even this is more complex because there's plenty of cases where people are transgender and do not have 
gender reassignment surgery. In other words, it isn't as if the way this is often presented is that somebody gets a whim that maybe they would like to have surgery to reassign their genitalia and they show up at a doctor who then schedules the surgery and they go forward with this in a matter of weeks. There's a lot more involved and a lot of careful thinking going on. And I think this seems to be the crux of the issue as people are debating this at the level of culture wars, how it affects women, uh, how it affects what we believe about what it means to be human. And I'd like to point to two people who themselves are and have always been rather controversial, but point out different aspects of what's going on. So the feminist scholar, Germaine Greer, who has been controversial for most of her life, has pushed back on gender reassignment surgery because most of her work in the area of feminism has been to say that these markers of gender are not essential. That is, masculinity and femininity are not essential to what it means to be male or female, and that these are roles and constructs that we have developed historically. And uh, of course, from her point of view, and she can back this up with a lot of evidence, is this has historically hurt women. I think on the other end, somebody else who brings up an interesting counterpoint to this is Slavoj Žižek, who also doesn't mind courting a bit of controversy. And he is saying that actually the great benefit and what we can learn from transgender people and people that undergo transgender um, reassignment surgery is that they are pointing to in their own experience that something is essential about the way we experience male and male. Also that folks who undergo uh, gender reassignment surgery are literally saying something like, they have been born in the wrong body and they will not be whole and complete until they have the surgery. As I enter into this conversation, what makes me nervous is not so much gender reassignment surgery or uh, transgender folks living into who they truly are. I would want to affirm all of that. I know what makes me nervous is a much broader conversation about how we think about bioethics and what it's okay to do to ourselves through this technology that we have developed uh, and call medicine. But that conversation is fraught because I know the, the tools that I've been given to have that conversation have a lot to do with what we consider natural and unnatural, uh, what we consider to be ethical is based on those categories that themselves seem to be flawed. In other words, think about the area of life-saving care at the end of life. So when we're talking about people who are, say, 75 years of age or above, we know that time is short in one way or another. We're all going to die. So in other words, every operation or, or every uh, instance of treatment could be a conversation about, is this prolonging uh, life in and of itself, or is this prolonging a good quality of life, et cetera. And I, I think about this personally, of the experience of taking care of my wife's grandmother. There was a time when she decided that she did not any longer want to take most of her medicine. And this medicine was supposed to be regulating her body. At this point, it wasn't doing that very well, but she was in her mid-80s. She could no longer walk and she was no longer interested in staving off the risk of, say, stroke or heart attack or all of these other things that she was taking pills for. 
and so at some level, we're always, we have this conversation more broadly than I think we would like to admit, or with hospice care, for example. Uh, we are essentially in hospice care, quickening the natural process of death and making that painless. I think we're all okay with some intervention when it comes to using technology in medicine. We're okay with intervention. Where do we draw the lines? Well, if it's just based on what we're comfortable and uncomfortable with, I think a lot of people do stand to get hurt. In other words, I think you could easily argue that somebody who is experiencing themselves as being female but was born in a male body or vice versa, that if they are at the point where that is the only way that they can live, that medical intervention is not something extrinsic, but not all that different than receiving any form of life-saving care that would both prolong life and prolong a good quality of life. So I think that tends to be the area where this conversation gets so sideways. And I would just say, I think the one problem is we often talk about this as us versus them uh, implicitly. So it's always those people that are doing this. But really what we stand to learn as human beings is something about what it means to be embodied humans from having this conversation. I think the Zizekian point here is interesting in that what we might tend to think about this is that people who are uh, manipulating their body are in fact the ones who uh, imagine that it's simply a construct. And his point is actually just the opposite. No, they're saying, he's saying that there's an essential attachment to the body that is definitive of identity. Your point with Jermaine Greer is that she's saying the opposite. And that's been the way, you know, that most of these sort of intersectional uh, studies have functioned in the past, what, 50, 60 years is to deconstruct different identities uh, or social norms or laws or rules based on pointing out that we take, we reify that which isn't essential about ourselves and we live then in a constructed reality versus reality uh, itself. And I think it may be interesting that Zizek is pushing back on that by paying attention to transgender experience. This is the one that actually theologically I'm also a little confused on. When Paul says, neither slave nor free, well, we can all understand, oh, that's a pure construct. That, that's a, an imposition that is a put upon people. Uh, same thing with Jew and Gentile. That's an enlightened view of both of those categories, that a, a Jewishness does not have an essence to it. Gentileness does not have an essence to it. But then he says, neither male nor female. And of course, we don't want to say, I don't think, that that's purely a construct that can be undone. I, I think that what Paul means in all of these cases, these are not identities that are essential to who we are in Christ. But nonetheless, the male-female seems to be of a different order than the slave-free and Jew-Gentile. That is, the others, oh, I don't think most people would have any problem saying, well, that's purely a construct. 
but genitalia are are not a simply a construct and it, and of course maleness and femaleness we understand that there is a cultural imposition put upon those that is a construct but nonetheless it's grounded in a physical reality this brings up a whole host of interesting uh questions and comments that i would like to make one i'm not so for sure that people so easily make the distinction between uh jew or gentile that is ethnicity nationality race being able to say that's a construct uh, i think actually the experience that we have in everyday life in the united states at this point is people identify as some version of american uh, as a part of their fundamental and reductionistic identity this plays out in a variety of different ways but recently i was a couple people shared stories with me where they are no longer able to have a civil dinner with their parents because their parents uh, immediately want to bring up trump maga the problem with people being woke and will pick on them essentially uh, for being, you know, liberal snowflakes or all of these other things rather than having a conversation. And that seems to me that there's a whole host of folks now who have reduced who they are to an ideology that is purely, uh, you know, a construct, but it's involving nationalism, ethnicity, etc. And that wouldn't really be able to tell the difference between no Jew or Gentile, no male or female. And then on the flip side, what I would say is I think what we're what physics is exploring now in the realm of theoretical physics and people exploring the idea of consciousness and matter, perhaps even what we take to be as concrete as our physical bodies is not nearly as static and as concrete as we have once thought. That that bodies are malleable. We're continually changing. There's just aging. The point that you made previously, I thought was a very good point. The the people that may feel the least attachment to their bodies are old people. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, that is that, and, and I'm getting to that point that I preach in a little church where most of the people are, you know, they, they don't want to hang around in the body that they have. The kind of traditional understanding of you know the division between soul and body i think is mistaken but actually i kind of understand that there is a comfort in recognizing well this body that we have it for many people is a it can function as a kind of imprisonment and the older we get the more that may be true you know i think about my own father who had polio there are with all of us there is a failure of the physical body in some way that it's not us. And yet, we don't want to quite say that, that this is kind of the Wittgensteinian point, that our, our category mistake is to imagine language and thought and ideas as if they float free of embodiment, and that then gives rise to the whole notion of the soul and the thing he made fun of uh, well my body is now experiencing a toothache no i'm i'm hurting i'm in pain we are embodied and i think we can just say that's who and what we are i think that's 
what the resurrection, you know, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Christ is assigning an ultimate reality to embodiment. But it's also true that that reality can be transformed and changed up. And I guess that there is a, a kind of malleability there and a flexibility theologically that you can go back, you know, to the story of Adam and look at the Patri- early church fathers, and they're going to read that story in interesting ways, one of which is to say that the fall resulted in male and female. Now, I, I don't happen to agree with that, but I think that's an interesting position. That is that there was a kind of low view of human sexuality on the other hand, there was the understanding in the early church that human sexuality was not an essential part of what it means to be human, or the way that we have that. Now, I just happen to think that male and female is. I'm challenged also the Pauline passage. I think it is part of who we are, and even is taken up in our picture of being joined to Christ, right? Yeah, so I uh, several thoughts. One, there's several Hebrew Bible scholars that have thought about the biblical phrase male and female and have concluded that the vav, the conjunctive, which is sort of an ambiguous letter, uh, can stand for everything else, everything in between. In other words, complicating the idea that there is just male and female, which I'm supportive of that move simply because I'm not for sure that we know exactly what it means to be male and female, that historically we have had so much trouble (laughs) with trying to define what it means to be male and female, and that we have always resulted to, you know, power, uh, instances of control, so that I believe it's in the 1970s is the first time that in the U.S. legal code, women are fully enshrined as people and not property once they're uh, married, so that essentially, I think it's before 1974, officially on the books, in the United States, a woman was first the property of her father and then the property of her husband in the eyes of the law. That's very recent, and I hope startling to people. And I I use this just to point out that we have not been, and I say we as human beings, have not been the best at discussing what it means to be male and female in a way that tends towards mutual human flourishing. So those categories, I believe it's 1974. I would have to I need a fact checker. Wow, that's that's shocking. But it goes to the point that what we're describing is human failure can almost always be uh, equated with a failure in maleness and femaleness. Maybe that's just an oxymoronic statement. Of course we're failed in our maleness and femaleness, but the way that that gets expressed, even in Genesis, but clearly throughout human history, is the oppression by one gender of the other. I think I would uh, I would try to push that even further, that I think where we are failed is a failure in the way we relate. So that the way we most fundamentally experience relation is, or not most fundamentally, most normatively, we experience relation in terms of male and female or in some kind of gendered experience. So even say, including intersex, including if we're just talking about biology, sure, we have trouble relating to our own bodies, our own sexed bodies, 
we have trouble there. We have trouble relating our sexed bodies to other people. But doesn't that just reflect a trouble that we have relating to ourselves, relating to other people as people, relating to God, relating uh, to the world, relating to objects? It seems to me that the more fundamental issue is that we, in sin, are misrelated. Sin is a failure of relationship with God and with other people, and that salvation then is a restoration of relationship. And I guess the question, though, is, isn't there a sexual component in that restoration? I think so. I think uh, the other thing that I wanted to point to was a lot of the problem that we're describing is a tendency towards reductionism, so that it may not be so much the problem that it's just male or female, but if you reduce yourself down to, say, just being male or female or whatever, you're going to have trouble. If you reduce yourself to being whatever your ethnicity is, if that's if you reduce identity to any one of these markers, you're going to have trouble. This is where I think the idea of intersectionality is very helpful because scholars who have pursued critiques uh, I'm, I'm most familiar with like critiques of the Bible or critiques of literature uh, using the tools of intersectionality have been able to say, oh, it's never just one of these things. But when these conversations began to happen, so before there was this idea of intersectionality, what initially was the case was you would have people almost working in silos. So you had feminist scholars, uh, you had uh, eventually queer scholars, you had post-colonial liberation scholars, etc. And sometimes they realized they were working at odds with one another. The idea of intersectionality has overcome some of this because it is the uh, affirmation that a human person can't be reduced to any one of these markers. And, and I think that's a good impulse that we've hit upon now. So I think reductionism is one problem. And of course, this is stemming from a sort of metaphysics that we've inherited from the Enlightenment. We may not think scientifically in this sort of mechanical way any longer, but we haven't eschewed the metaphysics that accompanied that mechanical view of the world. So we're very much still in that mindset, I think. Uh, an example that I thought of as you were talking, Paul, was in the beginning of when you were doing the Wittgensteinian thing, in the beginning of Insight, Bernard Lonergan has an example where he asks you what a wheel is. And uh, obviously the point is that you're going to get the question wrong. Because what we most often do is define things at the level of picture thinking. So we might look at, you know, what is a human being and we, or what, what is embodiment rather? And we begin to immediately associate embodiment with that thing that we can see a physical form. But I think it doesn't take much study in biology or physics or chemistry to realize that what a body is is not simply that thing that you could see, uh, which would be to give the quick answer that the body is material. So that what it means to be an embodied human being also deals in consciousness, it deals in the way that our bodies change and react, it deals in the way that uh, our, our bodies are constantly going through cycles of growth or decline, uh, et cetera. And you could just examine what is a body in a bunch of different fields. And that's when you begin to realize, oh, you have to have this conversation uh, in relation to other sorts of ways of defining what a body is. I think the realm that we're most unsure about is probably consciousness. So if we ask, what does it mean to be embodied? 
most of the time, the answers you're going to get have something to do with material physical processes. I think that is a symptom of the fact that we're still locked in to this sort of mechanistic way of understanding the world metaphysically. But what we might say what a body is has something to do with consciousness. Why do I experience consciousness as something separate than uh, you? In other words, why am I not experiencing consciousness as something that we share, that we share the same thoughts or et cetera? I don't think that's been explored at all. I think when we come to having this conversation about uh, LGBTQI, especially transgender, that would be helpful. In other words, having a way of coming at this conversation and how actually transgenderism may be uh, body affirming, if we could have this conversation at the level of what it, how does consciousness play a role and what it means to be an embodied human being, it may take away from a lot of the threat people feel. I think people feel anxious in this conversation uh, often because we have and we operate on reductionistic definitions of the body as matter. And essentially, when you have the conversation about transitioning from one gender the, to the next, what gets focused on in, in a negative light is always uh, related to matter or material. Whereas most people don't care that much uh, if you want to think of yourself as another gender. In other words, we actually try to separate those two things out. And maybe that's the interesting bit of what Zizek is getting at, is that we can't have a conversation about what it means to be materially, physically a male or a woman without also understanding that these categories, whether we take them to be essential or not, uh, are categories of consciousness, and we need we need to talk about that. I'm not Maybe, for sure I, that he would go there, actually. I don't think he would go with me. He's probably too materialist, but I think the issue that he brings up is a springboard to that greater conversation. Yeah, he, he's a materialist, but he's also a materialist who recognizes there is an inherent manipulation of and ultimately an absence. I'm kind of restating what you said in different language, and that is that our tendency is to reify or essentialize. So we might do that with race. I mean, this is the problem with critical race theory at the moment. People get up all in arms about, I mean, really what they're arguing about, should we study black history and what happened to black people? I mean, that's really what's at issue. But of course, the other side of that is that uh, the, the sense that race itself, that is not determinative or essential. Now that we're studying DNA and we recognize that actually theories of race don't hold together at the level of DNA. You know what our categories black white brown actually are pretty meaningless at the level of dna people who are black and white may share more at the level of dna than two white people or two black people so that's step one is that we are literally deconstructing things that at one mm -hmm. time we would have assigned an essence to and of course we can do this mistakenly with things like Japanese-ness. You know, if you're not familiar with the people in Japan, it's easy to make the mistake and think, oh, these people share an identity, a language, and that's just not true. There is now a people called Japanese that might, they, there is a linguistic sharedness, but even that's questionable at certain levels. 
Uh, but that has been a kind of enforced thing through the Meiji government. We've, we've done the same thing in talking about Hinduism. Well, mm. before the British created the category, there was no Hinduism. There were the people and practices of India that didn't, they don't necessarily cohere. And it was only with the British, the kind of outside imposing the idea, oh, that this is a singular religion and identity that we get that category. So Shintoism in Japan is the same thing. There really wasn't what is now thought of as a unified religion. I'd say the same thing about Judaism. Now, this is getting closer to home, because I think as a lot of the Christians imagine that Judaism has some essence at its center. What we can recognize, I mean, it's no, no huge thing, you recognize, oh, well, actually, there are Pharisees, there are Sadducees, and, and even to begin to define those categories is more problematic than you might suppose. Pharisaism is a reform movement that, in fact, was taking a broader, you know, tradition and incorporating it. I'm giving you the, the usual view, and Sadducees then were usually thought to be literalist, that you just stick to the Torah. But other people say, well, no, actually, that's that Pharisees and Sadducees can't really be reduced to that. Well, and then, you know, uh, Daniel Borian comes along and says, well, actually, the Judeans, just being Jewish, that's not a, a, a category at all. That's just saying the, the way of the, the, the Jews and does not refer to any religion at all. And so he de deconstructs the category of Jew, that there is no essential Jewishness. I'm not sure how Jews might react to that. But as Christians, I think that's what we would say, that Judaism is a perfectly acceptable situatedness for what we believe about Christ. That is, the category is malleable enough that it's not that Christ is coming in and rejecting Torah or undoing Torah, because Torah is something that he sees himself as fulfilling, embodying, and completing. And so my point is that I, I guess this is a theological understanding just about the nature of the world and the human failing. Our tendency is to essentialize. And then what turns out, what it turns out is at the center of that essentializing. And this is where I like Zizek. He says, there ain't nothing there. But he says, we're essentializing the absence. That's precisely the thing that is described. You know, Christ refers to the, the Pharisees and the scribes as whitewashed tombs. There ain't nothing there. It's an empty center. Uh, you know, Paul might say about the Jews that, you know, this was Hegel's point about the Egyptians. The mystery of the Egyptians was a mystery to the Egyptians. You know, our tendency is to imagine, oh, if we could get at the, the, the center of the Egyptian understanding, maybe in those pyramids, you know. Well, uh, Hegel's point is, no, that, that's all a mystery to the Egyptians. I think Paul's point about the Jews is the same thing. The mystery of the Jews is a mystery to the Jews, that we essentialize an absence. And so that's the human failing, right? And, and we just so repeat I, that again and again. Yeah, so I think this is good, and you're hitting on a, a very important point. 
my fear is that maybe we have made this uh, way of coming at basically deconstruction and pointing out that the emperor has no clothes, uh, that we have made this do too much work. And here's what I mean by that. What you said is true. It has to be said. And I think the way it, historically uh, some of the impetus of pointing this out has been to try to get people to stop doing violence to one another. So, of course, how the, the trouble with essentializing these categories, as you well know, is that then we the next step is that we're willing to kill over them. Right. We need to point that out. But what we don't want to do is, I think, to invalidate people's conscious experience of life. So essentially to say that by essentializing these categories, there's nothing there that's true, but maybe the problem is reducing the self to one of these categories. So, and that's of course what leads to violence, but it doesn't mean on the flip side that our experience of being American or Japanese or living in Texas, that there's nothing true in that experience. In other words, that's really all we've got. And even the only way we understand who Jesus is, uh, is by our own experience of the risen Christ. And then we also, as Christians, go on and to tell the story of Jesus's, of course, uh, historical existence as a first century Jewish person. So it's not that we think that there's nothing true about this specific locatable embody, uh, material existence that we all have. We just don't want to reduce, I think, consciousness to that thing. And so this is why I was thinking about what you were saying. It, on the one hand, you can use that idea, especially if you're talking about race, to move past doing violence to one another. In other words, we have to be able to say, I think at one level, race is a made up category. But the problem of what you don't want to do then is to dismiss the experience uh, of being white or black, say, today in the United States, because that experience is valid and most of our problem <laughs> is yeah. how do you deal with this experience so i i think the answer is twofold and a part of what i would i would think about this is if we're thinking in terms of consciousness what we would want to say about as christians is that we don't want to reduce this all of our issues simply down to origin so that we can find a point in history uh, where we can see how an identity uh, was constructed and then reified, essentialized, and then caused problems. But we would also want to say that experience as such, that our experience of conscious existence uh, as embodied people, in some way the answer is not behind us to make sense of this experience, but it's in front of us. Uh, not in front of us temporally, but transcendent rather. So that conscious, making sense of conscious embodied experience is not done simply by deconstructing all of the essentialized reified markers that we attribute to ourselves, but to figure out how our experience in the world makes sense in the risen Christ or the universal Christ. Uh, that's a Christian way of answering this, but you might also broaden that out thinking about the way John talks about the Logos we make sense of our experience according to the truth of all things. I think this is a point that I want to make, maybe a good pivot point. Something that is often seen at stake in the issue of LGBTQI plus uh, transgender conversations, et cetera, is uh, natural law. So that whether or not people are Christian or Jewish or uh, Muslim or no faith at all, 
often there are appeals made to a sort of natural law. And Christians, I think, are the worst at this because they sound the dumbest when they say it. But you, the version that you hear, the popular level is, well, Jesus says uh, they're just male and female or God uh, created male and female and that's it. Well, that's not even a good representation of all of the data that we have uh, through human experience. I think this is the same sort of move that a lot of people made rather with action. It's taking the Bible and trying to say, well, by faith, I believe this regardless of the evidence. And, and it immediately puts scripture or revelation in conflict with what we call now natural science. But when you put something like that in conflict, what you're really doing is just saying, I'm not going to pay attention to all the data to come up with some kind of reasonable answer. Uh, so what might natural law be if natural law isn't uh, reducible to say, uh, my experience of culture and relationships and where I live and nationality, ethnicity, race, et cetera, is concrete, which is usually how natural law has been worked out, right? In other words, uh, if you were English in the 19th century, it was obvious to you in a matter of natural law that Europeans and British people should rule the world because we are literate and eat with the right utensils and a bunch of other stupid stuff that's not true. All right. So this is, I think, where deconstruction is so important, which is the conversation you were just having. We don't want to conflate these essentialized reified markers with the natural law. But on the other hand, I think what we're noticing and what we would say as Christians especially is that we don't want to be complete relativists. In other words, we don't want to say that all there is is my experience, and then that experience may not even be communicable uh, across different, uh, vastly varied experiences. The way we often talk about this is, is at the level of culture. How is it that I can communicate something uh, about what it means to be human at a very deep level with somebody who has a very different experience than myself of that, that's a contemporary. Perhaps they live in a vastly different culture or vice versa. And maybe even more radical is that we can read uh, poetry that was written in the, you know, Near East, ancient Near East, and it still resonates with us today about something that is deeply and fundamentally human. We can do the same thing with uh, literature basically from any time. What's going on there? Again, I would follow Lonergan, and what he does is essentially to say that if we want to have a conversation about what might be natural law, perhaps it's this experience of our own consciousness moving from data to insight to judgment to responsible action. And uh, as Christians, we would say that means to love one another, essentially. So my favorite quote that I'm always saying is Lonergan says, be intelligent, be attentive, be intelligent, be responsible, be loving, uh, and if necessary, change. In other words, this is the natural law, that we're able to have a conversation, we're able to ask questions, and we can ask questions because we expect answers, and that already reflects a movement from potency to act. This is what all of the church fathers are talking about when they construct theologies uh, that follow the pattern of Exodus and Reditus. That is, everything that is finds its source from God and ultimately finds its full definition in returning to God or participating in the life of God. It's the same movement from potency to act. And we do that, though, as individuals. In other words, we make uh, judgments, but our judgments aren't the judgment of an individual alone, the quote, I think is John Dunn, no man's an island. In other words, when we make a true judgment, 
whatever that is, is immediately communicable with other people. Maybe the formula is not, and that's what's wrong with forms of dogmatism. Uh, rather, but what is true is communicable across cultures, languages, times, etc., different human experiences, and it resonates with us. I think that's a much better way of thinking about natural law and the conversation that we're having. So that if what we insist upon as natural law is, uh, you know, like gender being static, male or female, well, that already doesn't match up to most people's experience of reality. But what if we took a step back and we're willing to say, no, where the natural law comes into play is we all have experience of what it means to be human and we're going to pay attention to all those experiences. That's the biggest problem with this conversation is that people who become very anxious want to silence anybody who is willing to contemplate that maybe gender is more complex than your genitalia. And so that's what I found so wonderful about Zizek's point. Uh, but likewise, it's why somebody like Jermaine Greer is also important to this conversation. What I would say, and this is what I, I didn't say strongly enough the last time we talked, I mentioned that the Episcopal Church is totally affirming. I, I said that as sort of like this other thing. Well, I'm in the Episcopal Church because I also want to be affirming. What I want to be affirming of is people paying attention to their experience, in this case about gender, sexuality, working through that, and honestly and responsibly seeking true answers about who they are in ways that they can share and we can all learn more about what it means to be human. I want to be affirming of that in all cases. Uh, and that means being affirming of transgender people. That means being affirming uh, you know, of gay, lesbian, et cetera, LGBTQI+. I want to be affirming of all of this and definitely affirming of paying attention to their experiences, not because these people are different or odd, but because this is a part of the fullness of what it means to be human. And if we get away from the sort of mechanical metaphysics that we've inherited, one of the implications, I think, of turning towards a more, not just classical, but a metaphysics that is more true is to say that the truth or the way that we come to understand ourselves is not by reducing things down to parts uh, or by reducing systems to cause and effect, but rather by paying attention to the fullness of experience and what we can say then. So rather, it is this it, cultural experience falls under this too, religious experience falls under this too. It is paying attention to the broadest range of data that you can that you're able to say something more true, not the opposite. I think our tendency, because of the metaphysics we've inherited from the Enlightenment, is to want to reduce things to parts and see how those parts fit together. And, and that's why perhaps this conversation goes awry so quickly, uh, because we now live in this sort of transition from you know, the modern, the Enlightenment way of doing that to where people are already pushing back against that inherited framework, but we don't really have a handle on how to have that conversation or what we're turning to. I, I think I'm agreeing with you, but again, I guess maybe my impetus is more toward a deconstructive mode, and that is that if we're confronted with a good Nazi who says the blood and soil of Germany is the essence. Well, we want to deconstruct that. In other words, we yeah, want to. Yes. Yeah. There, there are some things we don't want to affirm. And, and by the way, in deconstructing Nazism, 
it's not that we can't have an appreciation for the blood and soil of Germany, that there is a kind of uh, a thing about Germanness, maybe, that we want to affirm, while also acknowledging, yeah, but there really is no unified, singular, essential thing that is Germanness. And then you can so just go. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I have about a singular point I just illustrate, and that is that uh, that's the, the same thing is true with Japanese-ness. This is what I was faced with, you know, continually, that Japanese-ness can be so essentialized that, in fact, Christianity is the enemy. It, you have to almost be anti-Christian to be Japanese. And that, of course, is to misunderstand what it, it's not in any way to deconstruct what I mean by, you know, taking these categories are apart. Or the same thing I think you're saying. These categories are always binaries. They're always made of a multiplicity of things. There really is no singular essence to them. But our tendency is to imagine that is the case. I'm afraid that the same thing, and I'm not saying I can completely negotiate this or navigate this, and that is that the danger is that we would do the same thing with human sexuality, that we would essentialize it in such a way as to assign it more weight than it actually deserves or, or can bear. And I think that's the point of Christianity, is we're saying, well, Yes, there, we want to affirm material creation. We want to Im affirm Im embodiment. We want to affirm human experience. And, and that does mean affirming Japanese-ness and German-ness and, and the, the, uh, you know, in particular, the black experience in, in this country. But in affirming, we don't want to fall back into essentializing. And I would say the same thing about black experience, by the way. Boy, I'm all for studying black history and, and getting that straight. But I also think that there can be a, a mistake there in imagining that blackness is enough of an identity to give life and find love. James Cone's experience, he does both. He, he acknowledges the fullness of black experience and that there is a recovery, though, the, of that experience in Christ. And I guess that's what, you know, what it comes down to. The love of God and neighbor and the, the meaningfulness of human experience, you need both things. And in the issue of, of gender, LGBTQ, I'm afraid the same danger lurks. We don't want to fall into simply affirming and essentializing. So I don't think that's uh, the point of paying attention to experiences, to pay attention to human experience at the level of data that has to be judged. In other words, what I'm advocating is we turn away from a sort of default metaphysical position that takes things apart reduces them to their parts, and then in the case of deconstruction usually says there's nothing there, but rather to pay attention to all of human experience to precisely judge what is true from what is false. In, in other words, as a Christian, I don't think we want to end up in a place where we say it's all relative, which is what ends up happening 
I think, in some forms of deconstructionism. It's just you end up with a relativism. You know, an interesting critique of this comes from somebody like Noam Chomsky, because he would say, no, you actually, you already have something about you that allows you to uh, take on a culture, to take on all of these aspects that can be essentialized, that may be false or may not be false about who you are. There's something about you that can receive those things and put them into practice as you. And uh, whatever that thing is, I, I would not say that it's just neutral. I would say it's good. That's a part of what it means to be conscious. And consciousness uh, is a created thing in the sense that it is good when we experience it. And so what we are, what I'm advocating for then is you pay attention to the full realm of human experience to be able to make true judgments about it. What I think is happening rather when oftentimes Christians have this conversation or the way the conversation actually about whether it's race or gender, uh, et cetera, class in the United States is a whole host of people want to only pay attention to one set of data, actively um, pursuing through legislation, silencing or erasing a lot of other people's human experience because they want to keep the status quo. I want to argue against that. I just don't think deconstruction gets you there fully. In other words, deconstruction is one aspect or one tool that we may use to point out what is true from what is false. Or uh, in maybe a more complicated way, uh, I, I think this is both in Hegel or Kierkegaard, the idea that there are different levels of experience or true modes of being so that it's not as if uh, for Kierkegaard, you know, he has these categories of the aesthetic, the ethical, the religious, religions A, B, etc. It's not that you get rid of the aesthetic or the ethical, but rather it's suspended and understood by the higher. And that's the sort of metaphysics we need. Right now we have a metaphysics that is constantly reducing things to parts, taking things apart, and uh, this is an, and we've inherited it from the Enlightenment. What we need is to say we make sense of the whole, we're able to make the most accurate and true judgments, uh, rather not by taking things apart and looking at whatever it is that we're trying to define by reducing it to its parts, but rather by paying attention to the full breadth of experience and understanding how more complicated uh, systems, that is when we find how things are related uh, on a, a larger, larger is probably not the right word, there's some metaphorical language, but it's actually the more complex or the higher that explains the lower, not the other way around. Yeah, that it's field theory as over and against atomism. That is, sure, the, yeah. the field That's explains right. the, the parts. The whole yeah, explains right. the parts. And, yeah, that is the that is the shift. And I guess that what comes into that is that, for as Christians, we believe the wholeness, the field, is inclusive. We begin to approach it through who God is in Christ, right? That... There we encounter the truth, and truth then will always give rise to, in other words, it's always in an encompassing experience that also is loving, that it produces love and peace, that violence is always a lie in some sense. It's always a failure of truth. Yeah, the Christian I, way of staying, they're in the New Testament, right? All things cohere in Christ. Yeah, yeah. This is all a kind of preliminary and not an explanation to the subject. In other words, we're just kind of approaching the subject and not saying, aha, 
you know, this is. Well, I, in, I, I think we're doing that on purpose because why would we be able to find a funny kind of fuller final answer to having a conversation about human sexuality or gender? You know, my thought is that the conversations that people are even having now will be revised in 100 years or less. That This is uh, something that we've only begun to pay attention to in any real or an earnest way. And perhaps at the moment, we don't even have the tools to do that very well. Because for one, a lot of our data that we have to look at is still gathered, I think, under the assumption of a metaphysics that we're already moving out of. And so I think it's fraught with problems. And so maybe what I'm trying to do is give an explanation why I personally am affirming and willing to say that the conversation has to go on, but at least a defense of being affirming of people's experience and why I think that's the best approach that is going to also be nonviolent. Because I, even if I don't need the full and final answer now, I think the way we get at this, the answers that we need or the way that we're going to say something more true about human gender and sexuality is by opening the conversation to experience to the wide variety of human experiences of being sexual beings or being gendered beings that we haven't quite done yet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that... Actually, I think actively it's a political conversation because what's happening right now uh, is that a lot of folks would like to use the powers of legislation to shut these conversations down. And that's the problem, is that, that these things always get politicized. Well, they're that, political to start with. Yeah, yeah. That, well, it is, it is. And I, and I mean, it's what kind of community are we going to be? Uh, are we going to be a community of exclusion? Or are we going to be a, a community that is not anxious, peaceable, uh, that thinks the truth is the whole? Yeah, yeah. No, you're, you're, I, I'm in, in agreement Actually, even just theologically, when you think about the biblical portrayal of human sexuality, it is very complicated because what is portrayed in the church becoming the bride of Christ, <laughs> that in some way there is a malleability to our being joined in Christ that touches on the very essence of human sexuality. I'm assuming that's not simply a metaphor, or maybe I'm wrong. It's defining a reality, you know, a reality of union and wholeness, and it uses sexual imagery to do so. Yeah, I think so. I was just thinking at first when you said the, the, the biblical portrayal is basically just to let us know that we don't understand this, that we're apt to get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, we've created male and female, but we can't even begin to approach, even biblically, theologically, you know, uh, what that might mean, because those are precisely, it's precisely the sexual metaphor that Paul, for example, tends to resort to most often. And yet what he does with those sexual metaphors, when you actually look at them, are, it, it's often quite shocking, because what he's saying, I mean, look at Romans 7, 1 to 4. What he's saying is that there is the tendency to be gendered in one way, but that in Christ we're gendered the other way, and that this then produces fruit. Whatever you do with that, and that is his picture of man and wife, male and female, 
This is a great mystery that a man shall be joined to his wife. But he says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Well, and I would just point out that uh, as far as the Hebrew Bible goes, there's a long tradition, rabbinical tradition of being much more comfortable with entertaining all of the sexual innuendo and metaphors throughout the Hebrew Bible and not nearly as much anxiety over gender bending. Uh, Actually, Joseph and the book of Genesis is a case of this where uh, several rabbis talk about Joseph as especially being uh, transgender or cross-dressing in the story, and this both helps him and hurts him throughout. But the point of bringing up these questions for the rabbis is not to judge Joseph as a, as a sinner or anything of the sort. It's just another way of thinking about the story. They read the story of J.L. and Sisera through sexual innuendo. Um, they read the story of uh, Ehud and it was Eglon as the king through sexual innuendo. So that it seems to me that what might also be going on is that we haven't even fully deconstructed our, our own issues with sexuality that are very near to us and culturally bound, uh, then we then go to try to have this conversation. For example, I, I'll talk about Anglicanism or the Episcopal Church for a moment. It's very late when homosexuality becomes a crime punishable uh, in the eyes of the law in England. I believe it's it's either in the late 19th century or it's in the 20th century. And then that law gets repealed in the 1960s, and it's the Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey, who shepherds it through the House of Lords. And he does so not because he himself personally is uh, okay with anything that we would countenance in the realm of LGBTQ identity relations now, but simply because he thought it was unchristian to do this level of violence to people who were just trying to be people, essentially, especially using the law. Uh, Maybe that's a good example for people to follow today. It doesn't matter so much if you understand all this, but stop trying to hurt people. Uh, The other thing that I would say is, while it may seem to some that the Episcopal Church that I'm a part of is beyond the pale when it comes to these issues, the impetus in the Episcopal Church to become affirming and inclusive of same-sex relations and same-sex marriage had a lot to do with the AIDS epidemic. So that when nobody else was willing to even do funerals for AIDS victims, there were Episcopal priests who were willing to do that. And from there, pastoral care expanded and people who otherwise were not comfortable, uh, like most people, were not comfortable with the idea that LGBTQ folks should be mainstream in the 1960s, 70s, 80s. It was this health crisis that changed the minds of folks in the Episcopal Church. In other words, it was compassion, sharing the love of Christ with people and not ceasing to ask good, you know, not ceasing to ask questions, but asking good questions in context with human experience and not trying to operate based on principle only. In other words, there's uh, more than one way to deconstruct. One way of deconstructing, of course, is very academic, rigorous, but the other way is just to pay attention to relationships that you have with other people and ask yourself whether or not your system of beliefs actually matches up with what you feel in the way you're living your life and you can reflect on your feelings and all of these other things as well. So I bring up those two things to say that it's very easy 
for folks to have these conversations, I think us included, uh, neither one of us being LGBTQ. And we can have this conversation in a sort of abstract manner, but we have to remember that at the end of the day, we're talking about people. And how are we going to relate to, to folks? How are we going to affirm people as people? How are we going to uh, live in a relationship with each other? And that seems to be the aspect that also gets lost in this quite a bit. That's good, John. And actually, I, I'm, this is kind of a, an aside. Have you seen the, the movie, The Eyes of Tammy Faye? I have not. Uh, Jim Baker and Tammy Faye People who are sort of despicable at many levels, you know, just the money grubbing, the the yeah. kind of the tele-evangelism. But, you know, their message, at least in the portrayal of both the documentary and the movie, their message, I think, lit up a lot of people because of their focus on love. In other words, that that so much of the gospel that you hear in the among the tele-evangelists is kind of the hellfire and condemning. And Tammy Faye was actually one of the first to bring an AIDS patient, someone afflicted with AIDS, and interviewed him. And just a remarkable interview that she had, just showing compassion for someone who at that stage, that early stage, it's shown, you know, even here, these this couple that all of the terrible things they did and I guess that's that's true of all of us, that if we can show a little bit of love, a little bit of compassion in a real-world situation, in the end, that's going to be the test, I think, of our own faith. Yeah, because of course, we're, you know, we're complicated. We're trying to figure out, to, I mean, this is, that's, that's an odd thing to say. I say sometimes I like Heidegger, uh, a Nazi, if, you know, but he seemed to key in on this one aspect. You're just kind of thrown into this thing that is existence, and you don't get very much time to work out what it's about. Yeah. John, it's been a wonderful uh, conversation. Yeah, what, what would you want people to take away from this conversation? <laughs> That, I think, compassion is called for to search out and find a depth of understanding. And I'm saying this about me. We need to recognize the complexity of the issue and recognize that what we are talking about are people, are human lives, and to approach it then in in a loving way as, as much as, as we're capable. What do you think people should take away? Yeah, I think I would want people to take away the idea that life being human, embodiment, all the consciousness, all of these categories that we're dealing with are more complicated than sometimes we pretend, and that it would do us all well just to pay attention a little bit more and to be attentive to the vast range of human experience that's out there before making hasty judgments that often lead to actually hurting people. And so I would hope somebody would listen and, as you said, become a little more aware uh, and hopefully lean in towards compassion and love and seek understanding in that vein. Great conversation. Glad glad we could, glad we could do it again. <laughs> do it justice. <laughs> yes, Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, 
please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.